My name is Wes, one of the pastors here, and we're going to do now this morning what we do each week. We'll look at a passage from God's Word. We'll talk about what it means and why it matters and what we should do about it. So if you have a Bible with you, Bible app, whatever it is you access the Scriptures on, if you could turn today to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 13. Matthew, first book in the Old Testament, chapter 13, and we're going to start at verse 53 today. When you found that, if you're willing and able, if you could stand with me for the reading of God's Word. I'll read this passage for us when I'm done. I'll say this is God's Word, and if you'd like to join me in saying thanks be to God, I invite you to do that. So here we read this. And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there. This is the Sea of Galilee where he'd been teaching. And coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue, so that they were astonished and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers, James and Joseph and Simon and Judas, are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown, and in his own household, and he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. That's God's word. You may be seated. Let me pray for us quickly, and then we'll dive into this together. Spirit of God, we just ask that you would come now and open your word to us. Would you break through any hindrance, any distraction, uh, any blocks in our own hearts and minds uh, from what you want to accomplish and speak to us today? You tell us in your word. You never send out your word and it returns to you void. It does accomplish the purpose for which you send it. God, would you accomplish that purpose in each one of us today? And as I always ask now, eternal God, would you move and govern my tongue to speak your truth? Amen. <clears throat> what do you want to be when you grow up? Anyone ever ask you that question? What do you want to be when you grow up? Or maybe... Um, if you're like a younger person, maybe currently in school or whatever, people are still asking you that question. What do you want to be? Which if you think about it, is really an unhelpful question to begin with because it sort of assumes right from the beginning, it equates your career, what most people mean when they ask that question, like what job do you want to do one day? It equates your career with who you are as a person, uh, as though you are what you do for a living. So already unhelpful, um, in his New York Times bestseller, Think Again, organizational psychologist Adam Grant, he lists it as his least favorite question growing up, saying and, or adding, he said, I always dreaded conversations with adults because they always asked me that question every time I met with them, and no matter how I replied, they were unhappy with the answer. Uh, either like, oh, that's way too lofty, you'll never achieve that, or, you know, think bigger, like, why are you dreaming so small? It was never good enough. And of course, we all have dreams, uh, ideas about the future and where it is we're going to be, uh, where we might live, what job we might have. Sure, um, will I get married? Um, am I going to have kids? How many kids? We, we all kind of have these plans in our minds of what we think the future will look like. But the danger of these plans, along with that question, what do you want to be when you grow up in particular? The, the danger of that is they can create this kind of like tunnel vision or what Grant calls identity foreclosure, 
which is basically simply stated, it's a fixed mindset that blinds us from considering any other alternatives, uh, possibilities, perspectives, or information ourselves than what we've already decided is going to be the case in the future. It's identity foreclosure. We've just said it. This is what it's got to be no matter what other information is out there. So as you can probably see, we're returning to uh, our series after a summer break in the Ten Commandments. We're returning to our summer or our teaching series through Matthew's Gospel, entitled Kingdom Come. And today, we're looking at the way the people in Jesus' hometown experienced a kind of identity foreclosure as well. Only in this case, not for themselves, but for Jesus. They experienced identity foreclosure for him. That is, they considered all the future career possibilities. For a poor, uneducated son of a carpenter from Nowheresville, Nazareth, and decided that wise, wonder-working rabbi, let alone the Messiah, that, that was nowhere on the list of possibilities. No, no matter what evidence there was to the contrary, all Jesus' teaching, his claims about himself, his miracles, nothing. They just decided, no, this is what it has to be. And I think it's worth taking a few minutes for us just to look at this together, to consider the consequences of identity foreclosure in Jesus' hometown. But I also want to consider and take some time to consider the consequences of that same mindset for us today. How we do that same thing. For in both cases, what that leads to is unbelief. Identity foreclosure leads to unbelief as Jesus claims and his mighty works are emptied of their intended purpose, which, as John tells us in his gospel, he says that we may believe Jesus is the Son of God and by believing have life in his name. That's, that's what the witness of these things are intended to do. And when we just decide, no matter what other evidence, no, this is what it has to be, we experience this same kind of identity foreclosure with Jesus. And in order to help us understand why we do that, why we adopt that mindset with Jesus to begin with, as well as the importance of avoiding it, I want to look at our passage today in just two simple ways. We're going to talk about the circumstances of unbelief and then the consequence of unbelief. Just those two things, the circumstances and the consequence of unbelief. So if you close your Bibles, Bible app, whatever it is, could you open them again with me to that passage? Matthew 13, beginning at verse 53, follow along with me. As we consider the question of how appearances... What we can see is connected to our faith. Okay, so let's look first of all at the circumstances of unbelief. Circumstances of unbelief. If you look uh, first of all at verse 53 and 50, 54, broadly speaking, the, the circumstances we see here that lead up to uh, unbelief are Jesus. He leaves the Sea of Galilee where he's been teaching and healing people and he returns to his hometown of Nazareth where he begins teaching in their synagogue. Now, in Matthew's gospel, we know that Jesus' hometown is Nazareth um, in particular because he doesn't actually list it here. We know it's Nazareth because if you remember back in chapter 2, Jesus' birth story, his family has to flee, get away from Herod trying to kill Jesus. They go to Egypt. When they return, they settle in Nazareth. So that's where we get Jesus' hometown being Nazareth. In Luke's a parallel account, which many believe is a parallel account of this passage, um, Luke says specifically, Jesus' hometown was Nazareth. So that's how we get that idea. But then narrowing down the circumstances even further, the next circumstances that lead to unbelief, if you look at verse 54, is astonishment at Jesus' teaching. 
They're astonished at his teaching, which if you think is strange, that, that feels like it's something that should lead to faith, but it actually leads to unbelief, and hopefully you'll understand why in a minute here. But it's a bit more challenging initially to kind of understand what it was that was so astonishing about Jesus' teaching, because Matthew likes to condense his accounts of Jesus' life, different than the other gospel writers, and so he doesn't tell us what Jesus said that was so astonishing. He just says they were astonished at his teaching. But if Luke's account is truly a parallel account, and it certainly seems to be, there we get a much clearer account of what was so astonishing about Jesus' teaching. For there Luke tells us that Jesus, he comes to his hometown, he's invited to speak in the synagogue. So he stands up, he's handed the scroll of Isaiah, and he turns to the 61st chapter, I guess scrolls through it to get there, and he reads this passage from Isaiah 61, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, he has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, and to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Okay, Uh, um, so far so good. I'm nothing crazy or particularly astonishing about that. I mean, it's a great promise, beautiful picture, but so far so good. But then, here, Luke writes this, And he, this is Jesus, rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. And then he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Okay, so that's different, right? Um, All of a sudden, this is the point now where Luke records the same response that Matthew records, the same that, that Mark records in his account of the same thing. People are marveling. They're astonished at Jesus' teaching. But hopefully you see here, not, it's not astonished like, wow, Jesus, your teaching is so incredible. But astonished like, who in the world does this guy think he is? This scripture is being fulfilled. What? And we've already seen an astonished response to Jesus' teaching, if you remember at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. End of chapter 7, uh, we're told that um, they're all astonished at Jesus' teaching because, quote, Matthew says, he taught as one with authority and not like their scribes. That is, Jesus didn't quote a bunch of famous rabbis. He didn't kind of say, hey, this is what God's word is teaching you to do. He spoke like he was the author of scripture himself, saying things like, you've heard it said or you've seen it written, but I say to you, so all of a sudden, it's like a different level, right? He's, he's engaging in a way that's astonishing to people. They're like, we've never heard someone teach like this before. But now, look, even more unmistakably, Jesus is reading these prophecies from Isaiah about the Messiah, about God's coming rescuer, and, and then he says, and that's me. Um, yeah, all those prophecies I just read, that's happening right here in front of you. Ta-da! And, and, and now people are just like, what? Okay, so, and, and in their astonishment, they begin to ask questions, as you would assume. First of all, look at the second half of this, verse 54. They say, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Which I think is partly in referring to what you know, Jesus had just taught here in their synagogue. But I think he's also, they're referring to probably primarily all the stuff they're hearing about Jesus. Up until this point, he's made this huge name for himself as he's confounding the scribes and Pharisees with his teaching. He's, he's healing people, even raising people from the dead. And they're just like, what is actually going on right now? How does this work? But then look, the questions that follow. This now becomes the most immediate circumstances of their unbelief as they try to reconcile all this stuff they're hearing about Jesus with what they already know about him because Jesus is a hometown boy now. 
And they start asking these questions. Look at verse 55. Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? Are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? Are not all his sisters with us? And then they conclude, they're asking once again, where then did this man get all these things? Which are not, if you think about it, at the end of the day, those are not odd, strange questions to ask, are they? I mean, as D.A. Carson rightly points out, he says, in one sense, of course, the questions of the people are understandable, if not justifiable. Here was a young artisan from a rough town with no special reading or education. Where then do his wisdom and these miracles come from? They're trying to put it together. I mean, just to give you a picture of, of how they're struggling, imagine that tomorrow I drive up to Kamloops, my old hometown where I grew up for the most of my life, and I just started telling people, hey, everybody, I'm actually God. Come to visit you. Most people, anyone who even, if they first of all even remembered who I was, would be looking at me as I said that and just saying, but, but no, right? No, no, like, dude, I, I grew up with you. Uh, um, people are saying things like, I know your mom and dad, uh, your brother and sister, I know those people. Another guy's like, we, did, we were in Sunday school. Another guy's like, I was your gym teacher. Like, this doesn't work. So even if I'm saying all this really profound stuff, maybe even doing miraculous stuff, they're still like, how does this work together? I, I know you, so this doesn't seem to work. So their questions, they're completely understandable. They're trying to figure it out. Uh, but I think there's actually a few things going on all at once as they ask the questions. First of all, on a base level, I think they're just simply trying to reconcile the irreconcilable in their minds. How does this actually work? And, and, and we couldn't blame them for asking that question. Just what's going on here? But then secondly, as one commentator put it, I think they're trying to explain away the extraordinary by associating it with the familiar. Explain away all this miraculous stuff that they have seen and heard about by associating it with the familiar. They kind of just like, yeah, you know, maybe you did all that fancy stuff and maybe you didn't. But, dude, I grew up three, down, three doors down from you. You're, you're not special. You're just a nobody from nowheresville like us. And then lastly, and maybe this is as a result of their kind of growing resentment as they start trying to do this. I think lastly, I think that reference there to saying, is not his mother called Mary? I think that's actually a shot at Jesus. Because if you remember the story of Jesus' birth, there was some question as to uh, whether or not Joseph was actually the father of Jesus or if Mary had you know, perhaps had another encounter before marrying Joseph. So I think there's actually, he's trying to bring disrepute on Jesus as well as they ask this question. They're just all together, they're just saying, Jesus, he can't be all these things that people are saying about him because of this, this, and this. Not possible. Identity foreclosure. We've just decided this is what it has to be. Can't think of any other possibilities. I think F.D. Bruner summarizes this well, stating, they simply cannot believe a man can talk as Jesus does without having an advanced education, or that a man can make the claims Jesus does without having a distinguished family. So when their impressions come under scrutiny of longer reflection, their positive impressions disappear, and in their place a kind of contempt emerges. They are offended by what Jesus pretends to be. Which is exactly what we see there in the beginning of verse 7. When we read, and they took offense at him. 
That word offense in the Greek has this idea of stumbling or falling over something. Or the idea of having disgust or revulsion at someone so that you reject them. They took offense at him. Who, who do you think you are? We know you. So do you see it now? The, these are the circumstances here in Jesus' homecoming that led to unbelief. As the people in Jesus' hometown experienced this kind of identity foreclosure as it relates to him, as it relates to Jesus, so that even in the face of his divine wisdom, even in the face of his miraculous works, they still couldn't see him as anything more than the son of a carpenter. That's all you could be. But here's the question I think we need to consider for ourselves as we look at all that. Because it would be far too easy to look at all of this stuff going on in our passage and kind of just shake our heads at the townies from Nazareth here who, who just, they can't see Jesus for who he truly is just because they grew up with him. And we could even feel like, almost like empathize with Jesus, just being like, oh yeah, I know. I feel you, Jesus. You know what? I went back to my 25-year reunion, and nobody believed I could make anything of myself either. And, and, and miss an important fact, miss the truth that while these that we just looked at, these are the circumstances that led to unbelief for the people in Jesus' hometown, we all have circumstances of our own that lead to unbelief as well. And so the question really is, what circumstances or what are the circumstances in your own life that are leading to unbelief in Jesus today? Let's take a moment, just think of your own life and your own experience. What are the circumstances for you personally that are leading to unbelief in Jesus right now? What are the circumstances for that friend? or family member that led them to unbelief in Jesus. Because we've all, we've, all, we've all got them. We all have these circumstances in our lives, whether they're circumstances that keep you from believing in Jesus entirely, and maybe that's where you're at today, or perhaps maybe this is the case for more of us here, circumstances that just keep you stuck in the boat when Jesus is calling you out onto the waves. Circumstances that keep you trapped in and continuing to struggle and fail with the same sin over and over again for years. Circumstances that keep you experiencing just a fraction of all the life that Jesus has called you into. What are your circumstances? It could be any number of things. Maybe, maybe you feel like you were abandoned by God when you needed him the most. Where were you? Maybe you feel like Jesus is calling you to lay down something that you're not ready to let go of yet. Or calling you to, to go into something, walk into something that feels scary and, and terrifying. You don't, you don't want to do it yet. Maybe you're struggling to reconcile the claims of the Bible with what we know about science and cosmology. Maybe the teachings of the Bible just feel like hopelessly outdated and embarrassing. All kinds of different circumstances that lead to this same kind of identity foreclosure. But whatever it is, we all have circumstances that begin with honest doubts and questions. Which, hear me, that, that's good and fine to have. It begins that way, but if we're not careful, leads us to begin to explain away the extraordinary with the ordinary. 
leading us almost imperceptibly to then they turn into, from, from questions of Jesus, they turn into offense at Jesus, leading us then to the same unbelief ourselves. So what are your circumstances? And maybe you'd hear all that and you'd say, okay, well, so what? So what if I struggle to believe in Jesus sometimes? Who doesn't? And, and fair enough. There is no one, nobody's perfect. We all struggle in that way sometimes. But I think when you begin to see the results of unbelief in our passage here and begin to apply that same idea to your own life, you're going to begin to see why it matters so much, actually. It's actually really important. So that's the last thing I want to look at together with you from our passage here. We'll look at the consequence of unbelief. The consequence of unbelief. And where you see that result or consequence of unbelief there is in the last verse of our passage here, verse 58. Look with me there. It says, And he, this is Jesus, did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Now, something I want to clear out of the, the path right as we begin here is what this passage is not saying. Because uh, there's been a lot of misconception going on here. What, what this verse is not saying is that Jesus' ability to do mighty works, that his ability to do miracles in Nazareth was limited somehow by the belief of the people there. That is not what this verse is saying. There's many who've kind of wrongly come to that conclusion reading this verse, or especially in Mark's account of the same uh, thing going on here in Mark chapter 6, where he says Jesus could do no mighty work there. So we're kind of like, okay, so maybe... They're connected that way, but you got to remember, in Mark's account, Mark even goes on to say, except to lay his hands on a few people who were sick and heal them. So don't equate those two things together. That's not what this passage is saying. Interesting to note as well, uh, in Matthew's account, where you know how we saw those in Nazareth marvel or astonished at Jesus' teaching, Mark concludes his account by saying, Jesus marveled at their unbelief. But the point is this, their unbelief... These people in Nazareth didn't somehow prevent Jesus from being able to do miracles in Nazareth. Any more than our unbelief prevents Jesus being able to do miracles still today. And this is important to understand. Because there's been some real damage done through, through what I believe is honestly a, a kind of malpractice, if I can say it that way, in the church over the years. When people who are in really dire, difficult circumstances have been told, using this very verse as proof, that God would be able to heal you. He'd be able to heal that loved one if you just had enough faith, if you just had more faith than you do right now. If you could just muster up enough faith, God would finally be able to grant your request. And there's been some deep hurts and, and then just confusion at God as a result of that. Because that's... The problem is that's not at all what this verse is saying. A, it's not what it's saying exegetically. Like, that's not what the passage means. But it's also, it's just nowhere does the Bible present God that way. It doesn't present Jesus as this kind of Santa Claus genie in a bottle who, who just will grant your wishes if you can, you know, plead hard enough in your letter to the North Pole or, or rub the lamp well enough. Then, then, then God's going to be the one who will grant your wishes. That's not how God is presented at all in the Bible. In fact, a little later in Matthew 17, Jesus is going to say, if you have faith even small as a grain of a mustard seed, and you tell this mountain to move from here to there, it will move. And you'll be able, nothing will be impossible for you. 
So, so just to be really clear, this isn't at all teaching that the size of your faith is a limitation for Jesus' ability to work. But having said that, that is not to say that faith and the works of God are not connected at all. Meaning what? Okay, well, I think a, an easy example of this is what R.C. Sproul, the way he kind of explains this verse, saying this. He says, Jesus' refusal to do many miracles in Nazareth, which I think is that's what Matthew's getting at. Jesus' refusal to do many miracles in Nazareth was not because he needed the faith of the people to empower him, but because miracles are of little value to those without faith. What's that mean? Well, I think an easy example of that is found in Hebrews 4, which recounts the failure of the people of Israel to enter into the promised land, that that first crop that, that came out of the Exodus. He writes this, For good news came to us just as it did to them. This is the people of Israel traveling in the wilderness. But the message they heard did not benefit them because those who heard it did not combine it with faith. So think about the people of Israel. If you know that story coming out of the Exodus, think of the number of miraculous works they saw firsthand from their time of slavery in Egypt onwards. First of all, they see these ten plagues that God brings and just like devastates the Egyptian people. They're watching it happen as God protects them from each one of them. They're seeing the Red Sea open and walk through on dry land. They're seeing bread from heaven, water from a rock. Israel witnessed so many different miraculous works from God firsthand. And yet, as the book of Hebrews just said, although they were awed, um, impressed, thankful for those miracles, it still had no benefit for them. Why? Because their faith and trust were not truly in God. So they saw these things and were like, yeah, amazing, but their trust and their faith was in something else. So too for the people in Nazareth. Because you think about this, every single one of the miracles you see in the New Testament Jesus performed, while never a result as the, it's not the amount of faith that someone had, it was always in response to the faith that that person had in Jesus in particular, not just faith in general. Jesus always said to them, your faith, that is your faith in me, has made you well, or whatever it is. So it was who it was that they placed their faith in, not the amount of faith, but placing their faith in Jesus in particular that brought about all these mighty works. And so that's what I meant when I'm talking about how faith is still related to the works of God. For in carrying out that identity foreclosure, what the people in Nazareth were doing, explaining away his divinity as a result of their familiarity with him, They removed any possibility of putting their faith in Jesus. And thus, he did not do many mighty works there. That was the reason for the consequence. Their faith wasn't in him. Why would they put their faith in him? We've already decided you can't be anything other than what we already decided you are. And so that consequence, first of all, for the people of Nazareth, for their unbelief, first and foremost, was they missed Jesus. They missed Jesus, even though he was standing right there in their midst. And as a result of missing him, they missed the salvation that he came to bring as well. As the Apostle John says so simply, no doubt thinking of this very encounter when he wrote, He came unto his own, yet his own did not receive him. We just read this this morning. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. And the same is true for us today. To miss 
Jesus, to fail to see him for who he truly is and put our faith in him is also to miss the salvation that he purchased for us, that his own blood shed on the cross for all who put their faith in him. There are not, as we're so often told, multiple paths to the same destination. Faith in Jesus is the one thing that brings about salvation, that that applies his work on the cross to our lives. As, As we read in Acts 4, there's salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So to miss Jesus is to miss the salvation he came to bring. But look, the consequence of their unbelief is also missing out on blessings, miracles, wonders that Jesus performed in so many other places uh, and all the different uh, places that he was ministering in, uh, healings, forgiveness, feeding people, restoring people, even raising people from the dead. These and so many other Blessings were missed as a consequence of unbelief in Nazareth. And this, too, will be a consequence of unbelief for us today. Whether that's all of us corporately as a church or even you individually. Now, by God's grace, this actually hasn't been a consequence that we've had to experience regularly or a lot. I mean, you ask around. In this church, we we try to highlight these things as often as possible, but there is story after story in this place of God doing these very things in and through our church when our faith has been united with our need. We've seen God heal people. We've seen God provide for people. We've seen people forgiven, reconciliation, on and on and on. Not that we command God to act, nor is this in response to the amount of faith that, that he acts, but there's just evidence upon evidence Witness upon witness in this room right now that faith placed in Jesus is never misplaced. And yet, just because we haven't regularly seen that consequence in our midst doesn't mean we haven't seen it at all. Because we have. The opposite has been true. Unbelief, trying to accomplish things in our own strength, seeing ourselves as the Lord of our own lives, it's brought none of these blessings. And I am witness to that in my own life as well, far more often than I'd like to admit. Perhaps so are you. But as I read this, here's the thing for me, and I'll speak for myself, not for you. But what I never want to be said of me at the end of my life is that Jesus did not do many mighty works in my life or in this church because of my unbelief. I never want that to be said of me at the end of my life. How about you? Do you want that to be said at the end of your life? So my prayer for us is that may it be said of us individually as well as collectively as a church that in response to our faith, imperfect and failing as it so often is, that we saw many mighty works of God accomplished in our midst, here in this church, here in this city, that we could say things like, it's unbelievable the kind of things that were accomplished in that family because of his faith in God. It's amazing all the things that happened on that university campus because of her faith and the way that she believed in God. It's incredible all the incredible things God did in that Dunbar community because of the faith that God put, that they put in God at that church. May that be our testimony individually and collectively as a church. And hear me, I don't, I don't mean for a second, I, I know that that's not easy 
I know that maintaining that faith in the midst of some of life's crushing circumstances, that's not an easy thing. I know that. I don't mean for a second to say this is something easy, simple, that we don't constantly need to train our hearts to keep doing this. We do. I'm still learning some of the new faces here, but I know a lot of you in here. Listen, I know some of you have been bringing your need to Jesus for yourself, for someone else, for years. And nothing's changed. Still feels like God hasn't heard me, nothing is changing. And you're just so tired. <laughs> Holding on to faith, trying to maintain faith just feels impossible. And in the midst of those circumstances, any one of us, we can easily be tempted to experience our own identity foreclosure. Listen, either of Jesus, as the circumstances cause his claims and works to be emptied of their power, or for ourselves even. We can experience this for ourselves. Maybe I've messed up so badly. I've walked away so far. God, God won't help me now. Jesus doesn't want me now. But that's where the witness of the Bible can be so helpful in moments like that when we're tempted to do that. Why? Well, because it's filled with stories of ordinary men and women, just like you and me, who experienced and felt the exact same way in the midst of their own life circumstances that you do. Simple example of that being Peter. Remember Peter's story? So certain of his unwavering faith in Jesus at dinner, only to have a few hours later deny that he even knew Jesus. When the circumstances he was experiencing, Jesus' arrest, being taken away, caused Jesus' claims and mighty works to be emptied of their power. And then in the midst of that failure, feeling like now Jesus wouldn't even want to use me in his kingdom anymore. I'm just going to go back to fishing. Identity foreclosure of, of Jesus and himself. And, and that's just one of hundreds of examples that we have for us in the scriptures. And yet the promise of God's word as it relates to the character of our Lord and Savior is what? A bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not snuff out. Paul tells us, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. And what we see in the closing chapters of John's gospel is the resurrected Jesus restoring Peter, just as he promised, proving once and for all that Peter's identity foreclosure of Jesus and of himself had been entirely mistaken. And from that example alone, I'm telling you, it's one of the reasons that we should never we should never participate in identity foreclosure when it comes to Jesus, but neither should we participate in it for ourselves. For what does God's word tell us? Even for the one who's been given new life in Jesus already, we're still reminded, 1 John 3, we are God's children now, but what we will be has not yet appeared. Don't give in to the idea of what I see now in front of me, that's what it's got to be. There's so much more to still be revealed. And so humbly, imperfectly, and encouraging one another along the way, may we hold on to our faith in Jesus, resisting the temptation to unbelief as a result of our circumstances and as a consequence of that. Oh God, may we see so many more mighty works of God in our midst, in our city and in our world. Amen.